How can Canada alter its energy policy to better serve its national interest? Does Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline make economic sense? What advantages do multilateral fora like the World Trade Organization have over NAFTA for resolving trade disputes with the United States? What was the Trump administration trying to achieve with its coordinated attack on Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau following the G7 meeting in Quebec? What was unusual about Foreign Affairs Minister Chrystia Freeland's statements to the press in reaction to the Trump administration's statements? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine the multiple frustrations Canada's national government has been confronting in recent weeks and whether there are alternatives it should be exploring. We'll speak with energy analyst David Hughes, the author of a new report on Canada's energy policy. We'll hear from farmer, author, and political activist David Orchard about how Canada could better resolve growing American protectionism over steel, car parts, and farm products. And we'll hear from Moscow-based journalist John Helmer about the meaning of the Trump administration's coordinated attack on Prime Minister Trudeau following the G7 meeting in Quebec. On this week's program, Trudeau's troubles, pipelines, tariffs, and the wrath of Trump. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 15, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Germany, France, Great Britain, Canada, and Italy, while they quarrel with the U.S. at the G7 in Canada about customs taxes, in Europe are participating under U.S. command in the Sabre Strike exercise, which mobilizes 18,000 soldiers from 19 countries. The exercise was scheduled between the 3rd and 15th of June in Poland and the Baltic, close to the Russian territory. The same six members of the G7, plus Japan, will be participating in the Pacific, still under U.S. command in RIMPAC 2018, the largest naval exercise in the world aimed at China. In these war games, from Europe to the Pacific, Israeli forces are participating for the first time. The Western powers, divided by contrasting interests, are composing a united front in order to hold on, by any means necessary, war and more war, to their imperial domination of the world, which is threatened by the emergence of new state and social subjects. That comes from the article under the headline, Video, the USA and the EU Quarrel but Remain United Against Russia and China, by Manlio Dinucci, posted June 14th, originally appearing at Il Manifesto. In choices between colonial languages, Rwanda's Hutu were basically French-speaking, yet the usage of both the English and French languages are foreign elements to African interests. Part of the Anglophone strategy for Cameroon seems to be calling the persecution of English speakers genocidal, as headlined by The Guardian, quoting a lady in the bush. At this point, 
The conflict rises from disruption of state services, acts of violence by Anglophone militants, and a predictable response to calls for Anglo-secession. Reported enthusiastically by USA not exactly pacifist sources such as waging nonviolence, the English-language Western media tend to place their language and funding before war or peace, partly as a result of our moral ignorance and partly because there's a reasonable suspicion of a tactical use of genocide, the Camerounais of both European-language alliances may be endangered and share an early genocide warning. That comes from the article, Cameroon, the Battle of Languages Serves Colonial Masters, by J.B. Gerald, post-June 14th, originally appearing at Night's Lantern. There is simply too much corporate debt, consumer credit card debt, mortgage debt, sovereign debt, pension and healthcare liabilities on a global scale, affecting everyone from the OECD nations to China and the global south. Worst case can be global depression while government acts to save the richest and impoverish most everyone else. What will the Donald Trump do as president if he has to step into the breach facing global financial chaos? The retreat from U.S. leadership on trade, economics, military security, climate change, and ecological protection by Donald Trump is leading in the short term to a world that will emerge as more chaotic, more violent, more polluted, with dictators more emboldened and the poor more desperate. The healing response to Trump's excess is not a return to U.S. empire as usual, but to use this opportunity to establish principles, policies, and programs needed to start to build a global ecological civilization based on ecological and social justice and peace. That comes from the article, Goodbye to All That, Donald Trump and the End of the U.S. Global Empire, by Roy Morrison, posted June 14th. On Monday... Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat from California, joined by 14 fellow Democratic United States House of Representatives members, sent a letter to President Donald Trump supporting Trump pursuing diplomacy and, quote-unquote, incremental progress with North Korea. The letter also expresses concern about efforts toward peace being hindered by people, both Republican and Democrat, and both inside and outside the Trump administration, seeking, quote, to scuttle progress by attempting to limit the parameters of the talks, including by insisting on full and immediate denuclearization or other unrealistic commitments by North Korea at an early date, unquote. The Kana letter contrasts with a letter seven U.S. Senate Democrats sent Trump last week that argues several major North Korean concessions should be required in any deal. The signers of that earlier letter include two top Democratic leaders in the Senate, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, and Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, as well as Senate Foreign Relations Committee ranking member Bob Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey. Interviewed Tuesday at Democracy Now!, Khanna discussed in more detail his concerns about some members of his own party seeking to prevent diplomatic steps in regard to North Korea. That comes from the article, Representative Ro Khanna says fellow Democrats should support diplomacy with North Korea, by Adam Dick, posted June 14th, originally appearing at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The Trudeau government and the Alberta Premier have declared the Kinder Morgan pipeline and by extension the development of Alberta's oil sands to be in the national interest, so much so that the Prime Minister has promised to purchase the Trans Mountain pipeline from owner Kinder Morgan for $4.5 billion if a buyer cannot be found. Is this pipeline truly consistent with the national interest? Are there other approaches the government can be taking to developing Canada's energy capacity? Joining us to discuss this matter is a former guest. His name is David Hughes. David Hughes is an energy consultant and president of Global Sustainability Research Incorporated. He's a former earth scientist and a fellow with the Post Carbon Institute, and he's the author of a recent study called Canada's Energy Outlook, published by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Thank you so much for joining us, David Hughes. Well, my pleasure. So, in your view, what is at the heart of this embrace by uh, the, the federal and Alberta governments of a pipeline taking diluted bitumen to the West Coast? What, what puts it in the public interest when so many voices, including a provincial government, environmentalists, indigenous voices, and even <laughs> many liberal voters uh, seem to be rising in opposition? Well, the, the central tenant of both Premier Notley and... Uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau, is, is that we only have one market. Uh, 99% of our oil goes to the U.S. And that we're somehow being unfairly discounted, uh, sending oil to the U.S., and that we'll get higher prices in Asia. And, you know, there's been some rhetoric uh, used recently uh, since the Scotia Bank report came out in February that not having the Trans Mountain Pipeline is costing Canada $15 billion per year in lost revenue. And if you look you know, at that report and you look at some of the things that aren't being mentioned, uh, for example, there's other export pipelines in the works that are likely to be built. Uh, Line 3, which goes to Superior, Wisconsin, from Edmonton, and Keystone XL, which goes from Edmonton to Nebraska and connects with the, uh, the southern leg of Keystone XL that's already, already been built. And if you look at you know those two pipelines being completed, uh, there's sufficient capacity, uh, pipeline-only capacity, to handle the foreseeable ramp-up of oil sands production until it hits... Uh, Premier Notley's 100 megaton per year emissions cap. Right now, the oil sands are at about 70. So, you know, that cap will, will single-handedly allow emissions to increase about 40%. But even so, the two pipelines that are never mentioned by Notley and Trudeau could handle it. Hmm. Now, um, I'm just wondering uh, if you could say more about the, the economics of uh, of building this pipeline and uh, you know it, thereby um, you know incentivizing a continued export through this uh, you know 
you through this pipeline? Because as I understand it, it takes you know decades to to amortize those costs. Uh, yes, that's correct. And you know the fact of the matter is that we're we're going to be completely overbuilt, uh, even if we allow oil sands production to grow to that emissions cap if we build all three. So, you know, certainly increasing the oil sands is a, a very bad idea if we plan on meeting our, our Paris Agreement emissions reduction targets. You know, I've, I've looked at that, and uh, if you grow oil sands production to 100 megatons per year, that means the rest of Canada's economy is going to have to contract by about 50% by 2030 and 85% by 2040, which is uh, is a tall order. So, you know, first off, growing the oil sands uh, to the extent that that cap allows is basically going to blow our, our emissions commitment. And, uh, you know, second of all, we're going to have enough pipeline capacity anyway, even if we do that, uh, to capture world prices on the U.S. Gulf Coast. And it, you know, if you look at at the the so-called price discount that we're we're getting right now, it's it's true that existing pipelines are are essentially full. And the you know, I've just been looking at the. Uh, Price discount. If you look at the average price discount for 2017, it was about $12 a barrel, and that's between the, the heavy oil price, which is Western Canada Select, uh, priced at Hardesty, and West Texas Intermediate, which is priced at Cushing, Oklahoma, and that uh, that discount. It's fairly normal. It's the cost of pipeline transport to move it from Hardesty to Cushing, which is about six or seven dollars a barrel. And there's a quality discount because heavy oil is more costly to refine than West Texas Intermediate, which is a, a medium sweet oil compared to a heavy sour oil, which is Canadian oil. Uh, and so you, you get a you know, another discount of about five or six dollars a barrel uh, because it's harder to refine. So, a twelve dollar discount is normal. You know that that's world price. That discount shot up uh, in late 2017 because of a, a pipeline burst, the Keystone, the existing Keystone pipeline burst in South Dakota. And when they brought it back on, they reduced its capacity by about 20%. So that caused oil to be backed up in Alberta. And it caused the discount to spike to, you know, some days it was up over $30 a barrel. But that's uh, certainly not normal. And if you look at the timing, uh, you know, even if they start on the Trans Mountain expansion this summer, which is what the federal government has threatened to do. Uh, it won't be commissioned until 2020. And that's pretty much exactly the same time frame that those other two pipelines will be commissioned. So we're, we're likely going to have an elevated 
price gap uh, because of the fact that more rail has to be used if the pipelines are full. So we'll have an elevated uh, discount up until, you know, one of those three pipelines comes on stream. Mm. But, you know, I think the bigger conversation is how are we going to possibly meet our commissions, uh, commitments, if we keep trying to grow oil sands production so much. Mm. Well, I think one of the points that are raised uh, by governments and uh, their uh, you know, supportive economists is this idea that in a free market economy, uh, we need to be able to incentivize transition and we need to be able to finance it. And, you know, part of the me mechanisms include carbon taxes. And, you know, part of the deal, as I understand it, with, with Alberta is that you, you know, if we deliver a pipeline, uh, you'll agree to the carbon tax uh, uh, scheme. But also the idea that, you know, we need to create new infrastructure. And you point out in your, your very uh, report that we can't just transition at the snap of a finger. There's a significant amount of investment uh, that has to go into that. So, so what do you think about the uh, these ideas of uh, of pipelines and you know develop more uh, of our uh, non-renewable fossil fuel capacity in order to finance transition. I I don't think it makes any sense. You know, certainly <laughs> not to me. I mean, we grow our most emissions-intensive industry in order to reduce emissions. <laughs> you know, those <laughs> those seem to be uh, directly conflicting goals, and. You know, if you look at uh, Premier Notley's um, climate leadership plan, it's, uh, you know, very modest carbon taxes, which aren't likely to do much, if anything, in terms of reducing emissions. And it, it caps the oil sands at 40% above current levels. So, you know, basically the, the climate leadership plan is a plan to, to increase emissions. Uh, you know, I don't think that the... Even Trudeau's $50 carbon tax, I don't think will get us anywhere close uh, to the emissions reduction we have, especially if we keep on growing oil and gas production. My understanding is that uh, the amount of greenhouse gases just in the production of the, uh, of, uh, the, the oil in Alberta rivals what you'd see uh, burning it in cars uh, in industrial Ontario. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds like it could be true. I haven't actually done the math on that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, oil sands are, are emissions intensive. You know, the least, the least emissions intensive way of extracting them is mining. But mining is also a high cost, uh, way of extracting them. So, and, you know, only about 20% of the oil sands are shallow enough to be mineable. So, Virtually all of the growth is going to be in situ, which is much more energy intensive than uh, than mining. And that energy you know, so comes from natural it, gas for the most part, right? Yes, natural gas is the energy input. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been some talk of nuclear, and uh, I, I don't think that'll ever happen. Well... The, uh, I mean, natural gas is, uh, I mean, among the non-renewable uh, sources of fuel, natural gas would be among the, the cleanest. And, you know, are, are we seeing here with the production of, uh, of, of oil, tar sands, oil, competition for other uses of natural gas that we should be exploring? Well, uh, 
yes. I mean, if you look at burner tip emissions only, natural gas is about half the emissions of of coal, for example, to generate power. Um, you know, certainly, Western Canada has enough gas production to to handle you know the oil sands, you know, plus all of the other uh, uses for natural gas. But if you look at but the way that gas is produced, a lot of it is produced by horizontal drilling and fracking. And if you look at the the full cycle emissions from that, if you look at methane emissions at the upstream end, and you know the emissions throughout the whole the whole chain, including pipeline transport and so forth, uh, some studies have, have determined that. You know, burning natural gas for power is about as emissions intensive as burning coal on a full cycle basis. Hmm. Now, another point that we hear from governments is about uh, pipe pipelines being safe for way of, of transporting the product. Um, and you point out that uh, rail is, uh, I mean, it, it's viable and it's not necessarily more less dangerous. It's not necessarily more dangerous than pipelines for transporting this material? Well, you know, if you look at the way rail is being used right now, uh, largely, it's being used to transport dilbit. And dilbit uh, is basically diluted with about 30% light light hydrocarbons, typically uh, condensates and, and lighter natural gas liquids. Uh, you really have to dilute it that much in order for it to move through a pipeline because otherwise it's a you know semi-solid like peanut butter. Um, the thing about rail though is, is you know shipping dilbit by rail is is a matter of convenience. And if it if you have a, an accident, uh, yes, that dilbit is going to be. Uh, a big issue to clean up because it's diluted and it flows. However, you don't really need to use diluent in uh, rail cars. And if you if you don't use diluent, uh, you need heated rail cars. You really have to heat it up in order to uh, to load and unload it. But you can get forty percent more in a rail car uh, without the diluent. And if it spills, uh, it won't flow. So. You know, environmentally, it's much safer than a pipeline leak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that shipping uh, bitumen without diluent requires investment, you know, in terms of the upstream end, you know, loading facilities and so forth, and at the downstream end uh, to unload it. But if you made a commitment to do it by rail uh, and, and made those investments, which would be vastly cheaper than and building a pipeline, um, rail and pipelines would be competitive. You know, the other thing, alluding to your comment on how long it takes to pay off a pipeline, rail can be used for all kinds of different things. So, you know, investing in rail and, and rail cars, which can be repurposed, you know, should production drop down the road, uh, you know, in my mind, makes a lot more sense. But so far, that conversation hasn't been, uh, you know, going on the way it needs to be. Mm-hmm. 
Um, now, you've also uh, mentioned that the, the governments have been very exaggerated in their portrayal of the number of jobs that would be created in the construction of the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, are, are there alternative schemes we should be exploring that uh, would uh, actually benefit uh, both in terms of uh, jobs created and the overall uh, economy? Well, if you look, look at the pipeline itself, it's, it's a transportation project. It's not an oil production project. So basically, it's the jobs that are, are related to that piece of infrastructure. And if you look at Kendrick Morgan's own documentation, most of the jobs are in the construction phase, which lasts about two years. So the construction jobs would be over by 2020. And if you look at Kendrick Morgan's own documentation, the permanent jobs to operate the pipeline boil down to about 50 in B.C. and 40 in Alberta. If you look at the Alberta government's website on Trans Mountain, they're suggesting 37,000 jobs. Uh, you know, that, that's extremely exaggerated. I, I just can't count them where they, where they would get that number. Or, yeah, certainly they wouldn't be permanent jobs. The, the lasting jobs are about 90 after the thing gets built. How, how viable are hydropower, solar power, wind power as, uh, you know, alternatives that the government, I mean, if you got $4.5 billion to blow, you know, what, what kinds of returns could we be getting for that in, in those areas? Well, I, I, you want, one should also point out that $4.5 billion just gets you the existing pipeline that's already built uh, to build the expansion you know, Kendra Morgan's number was another $7.4 billion on top of that. So that's 12. Uh, if you look at Site C, I think, you know, the cost of that is around $10 billion. But I think, you know, the public's appetite for a lot more hydro dams is, is limited, you know, mm -hmm. to say the least. If you uh, consider the, uh, you know, the environmental costs and so forth. Um, you know, when, when I looked at it, and there's been, you know, the, the government came up with what was called a mid-century strategy paper uh, that looked at six different scenarios, you know, done by different reputable groups like the Deep Decarbonization Project. And I, I looked at those and the cost of those recommendations in my report, and you know, the, the average of all of them, if you look at, you know, solar, wind, biomass, hydro, uh, nuclear, it comes out to something like $1.4 by uh, by 2050, and that doesn't get us to 80% reduction, which is where we want to be in, in 2050. Um, and there's the question of, you know, what sort of GDP growth over that period is built into those those projections. I, I found them unrealistic. Um, you know, they were talking about, you know, something like 90 new hydro dams the size of Site C. Uh, I don't think there's any way that's going to happen. <laughs> and some of them were talking a lot more nuclear reactors, like, you know, replacing all of the 
the ones that are just about ready to retire and building a lot of new nuclear capacity. I would question that, uh, you know, given the uh, the cost. And so that boils us down to, you know, things like solar, wind, uh, biomass, you know, some geothermal. Uh, but, it, you know, my conclusion after looking at all the options and what Canada has available, uh, we've got to figure out how to use a lot less energy. You know, that has to be at the top of the list. And if you had $12 billion, I think, you know, plowing that into, you know, incentives for people to, you know, super-insulate their houses, uh, more mass transit, you know, options for people to have a reasonable quality of life but consume a lot less energy, I think that is really the low-hanging fruit. We have to do as much of that as we possibly can. And then, you know, that makes the proportion of what remains that we can address with things like solar, wind, uh, geothermal, and so forth, a lot easier to achieve. You know, trying to, trying to do the existing BAU consumption, you know, plus some growth is, is going to be extremely difficult. You know, that was one of the main conclusions of my report. David Hughes, I want to thank you very much for sharing these insights with our audience. We've been speaking with David Hughes, an energy consultant and president of Global Sustainability Research Incorporated, a former earth scientist. He is a fellow with the Post Carbon Institute. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. The U.S. president has criticized Canada's supply management system over dairy, egg, and poultry products as unfair to U.S. farmers. He's also proposed a 25% tariff on auto imports and imported auto parts, invoking the claim that foreign car companies threaten U.S. national security. Canada has been provoked into taking retaliatory trade measures to protect its interests. This development hits in the midst of ongoing renegotiations of the nearly 25-year-old North American Free Trade Agreement. The impacts of these actions are not insignificant given thousands of jobs and related industries at stake. Is there a way out for the Trudeau government that's not being discussed in media or mainstream political discourse? David Orchard is an organic farmer, political activist, and two-time contender for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. He's also author of the 1993 bestseller, The Fight for Canada, Four Centuries of Resistance to American Expansionism. He's been an ardent critic of NAFTA since its inception and joins us from his farm near Borden, Saskatchewan. Pleasure to have you back on the show, David. Hello there, Michael. Now, you mentioned in a previous interview that under NAFTA, U.S. companies have been buying up Canadian businesses and corporate assets. But according to the Government of Canada website, uh, this is what they have to say about NAFTA. Quote, NAFTA has had an overwhelmingly positive effect on the Canadian economy. It has opened up new export opportunities, acted as a stimulus to build internationally competitive businesses, and helped attract significant foreign investment. 
NAFTA has been a success by serving as a basis to grow both trilateral and bilateral North American relationships. This integration helps maximize our capabilities and make our economies more innovative and competitive. Under NAFTA, total trilateral merchandise trade, as measured by the total of each country's imports from its other two NAFTA partners, increased more than threefold since 1993. David, what do you have to say to those defenders of the deal who point to the prosperity Canada's enjoyed under NAFTA? Well, actually, our standard of living hasn't risen under NAFTA. It's fallen, and the real wages in this country are stagnant and actually uh, going down. So it, it hasn't helped us in that on that front. But what it has done is, you're they're right there, we're exporting more. We're exporting a record amount of our raw materials. Right now, the United States is taking an unprecedented amount of our oil and gas coming out of Alberta, going unprocessed out of the country, then it's being processed in the U.S., and we're buying back our, our finished gasoline at, at, at high prices. We're subsidizing, actually, to the tune of some $30 billion a year the energy needs of the United States because we're exporting our oil and gas across the border at rock-bottom fire sale giveaway prices. That's not something to brag about. And uh, the, what, what's happening, of course, is that Canada is being integrated into a North American market. This is uh, integration, the North American integration for Canada means assimilation. So that's what we're seeing happen. We've seen a takeover of literally thousands of Canadian companies by U.S. owners, both our national railways are now U.S.-owned. The Canadian Wheat Board, which was an east-west marketing tool for Canadian farmers, kept the Canadian grain trade in Canadian hands, has gone and moved into U.S. hands. So we're seeing this sweeping takeover of our industries by American corporations. And the, 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 the document that you quoted from doesn't talk about how the fact that under NAFTA, U.S. corporations have the right to sue Canada for any law or regulation in this country that they feel causes them loss or damage and they feel contravenes the spirit of NAFTA. And we've been sued 42 times and paid out over $300 million in NAFTA fines to American corporations, changed our laws. This is unprecedented that a country would allow itself to be sued by a foreign corporation. So we're, we're, we're losing our independence as a nation. Our laws are being directed by American corporations, and we're seeing the loss of our independence and our sovereignty as a country with its own economy. That's what we're seeing happen is when we talk about North American integration, that for Canada, that's assimilation into the larger partner. And that's not the future that I want for our country. Yeah, and, and in that, that continentalist framework versus what you mentioned in, in a previous interview about this uh, multilateral WTO framework, I was wondering if you could just help us understand, given the the uh, the, the tariffs that we've been seeing uh, being invoked and, and these uh, trade actions being taken, could you give us a couple of illustrative examples of how the multilateral framework uh, has worked to the advantage of Canadian companies uh, where it uh, does not seem to be working under NAFTA? Well, there's lots. You mentioned the multilateral framework. This is the WTO, it's called now, the World Trade Organization. It used to be called GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And when we signed the 1988 Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, we turned our back on the multilateral system and locked ourselves into just the U.S. system. And uh, we've done much worse 
we're, we've tied ourselves into a falling star with the American uh, economy. But we, when we want to have an objection, we have to go in front of the U.S. system of arbitration, whereas before we went under the multilateral system when there was power in numbers. We had other allies there because there's over 100 countries around the world that belong to the World Trade Organization. But in the Canada-U.S. free trade the deal on NAFTA, we're locked into just one other country, the United States. And the, you asked for some examples. The Canadian Wheat Board, for example, the Americans have always, had always opposed it. They tried to destroy it, and they tried to take actions against it, but they were never able to do so under the WTO or GATT. But, of course, once we locked ourselves into the free trade deal on NAFTA, the Americans have now succeeded in destroying the Canadian Wheat Board. Same thing with our tariffs on our softwood lumber. The Americans were not able to take these kind of actions before, but as soon as we started negotiating the Canada-U.S. free trade deal in 1988, we saw the Americans slap tariffs on our softwood lumber as a negotiating strategy, exactly as they're doing now with these tariffs. And they, can't, they couldn't do that under the multilateral trading system. So we should step out of this Canada-U.S. free trade deal and NAFTA and go back to trading with the Americans under the WTO, where there's safety in numbers, where the Americans can't take the kind of the unilateral actions that they're doing now. And I see that our Canadian government is agreeing with this now because with the tariffs that the Americans have placed on our steel and our aluminum, now Canada is going to turn over, turn it again to the WTO and ask them to please save us. Well, this is where we should have stayed all the way along instead of jumping into this frying pan of, of the North American economy. Okay, so the, the, given that uh, under Brian Mulroney, who's now advising uh, Mr. Trudeau and, and his people, uh, and, and since Mulroney, we've seen prime ministers embracing NAFTA over that multilateral WTO uh, framework. Well, if that framework was so successful, successful, then why is it that uh, we were seeing so much support for for this arrangement? Is it simply naivete, or is there something more sinister going on? I mean, you fought this uh, agreement you know, 30 years ago. What insights do you have into the, the motivations behind holding on to this continentalist uh, position? Well, it's become almost a mantra it's become the Tina thing. There is no other alternative. We're told constantly that we have to hang on to the NAFTA agreement. The, our, our government has no backup plan. We're being slapped around. The Americans are taking these actions against us. It's been their strategy from the beginning to, to take these kind of dramatic actions against our, our, our exports uh, to force Canada to do its knees, to force Canada to, to negotiate entry in, uh, into maintaining the, the NAFTA. And this NAFTA agreement and the free trade agreement with, we had before it with the United States are not really free trade agreements. There's all sections. I mentioned the right that allows the U.S. corporations to sue us. We've also, there's a section that's saying that we'll never charge the Americans more for any good that we export to them than we charge Canadians. And furthermore, we'll never cut back on the proportion of any good going across the border, including all forms of energy, We'll never cut back to the on the Americans for that without unless we cut back proportionally for Canadians. So this is incredible that we're giving away the, our competitive advantage, our energy advantage, and we're agreeing to sell that to the Americans for the same rate as we sell to Canadians, and never to cut back. And the Americans are taking about sixty percent of our oil right now under this NAFTA agreement. That means they have the right to 
continue taking 60% of our oil and gas in perpetuity, and we can never charge them more. Well, this is a kind of a straitjacket that cripples Canada's competitiveness, but it's very good for the large American corporations that are benefiting by this. So when you ask why do they like it, I mean, they love the, this kind of access, this kind of control over our resources that's been given to foreign corporations. So there's huge amounts of money and propaganda being spent trying to promote this deal and trying to convince Canadians that there's no other option. And in these new talks for the renegotiated NAFTA, as you mentioned, the American position is they want the right to buy up all sectors of our economy, not just the energy and the other sections that they've already got control of, but they want the right to buy up all sectors of the Canadian economy. And they've, there were some ex- exemptions before in our health care and our education and our telecommunications. There was a few exemptions that the Americans couldn't, didn't have the right to simply buy up. But they want an end to all of that, including our, of course, dairy sector, so that they can control all of those uh, those aspects of the Canadian economy as well. And what we're lacking is any Canadian voice that's going to say, just a minute now, we can't win at this game. We, we need to step out of this and go and build a, a Canadian-controlled economy that, that builds on our strengths and not simply tie ourselves into, as I mentioned, the U.S. falling star. Other countries have done this. Japan, after the Second World War, a little country with much, nothing much in the way of resources, built itself into a major automotive player in the world, a major electronics industry. They did that by building their own economy and making sure that their industries had the tools they needed to compete in the world market and not to be taken over. South Korea did the same thing, built itself from a little war-torn economy in the early 1960s to one of the major economic engines today. Norway has kept its industries, its oil and gas industries, in domestic hands. They've refused to let the American corporations come in and take control of them. And they've used the resources to build up a $1.2 trillion savings account, the richest country in the world, by refusing to give away their resources for nothing, but to, they, they, they're demanding a fair price for the month from the, on the world market. That's what we've given away all of that. We're giving our resources, as I mentioned, across the borders of the U.S. at rock-bottom fire sale prices. Are you anticipating that Canada will walk away from NAFTA, or will the Prime Minister cave in and deliver a worse agreement? Well, what we've seen, the kind of frantic negotiating, if you call it that, from the Canadian side, they've spent millions of dollars trying to convince the Americans to hang on to NAFTA. Don't let it go. We, they've, as a bargaining strategy, this is just terrible, because, of course, the Americans say, well, you want to stay in so bad, then what are you going to give us to, uh, to, for us to, to renew it? And Canada has no plan B. Our plan, our government has been promoting is constantly, we're going to save NAFTA. We have to hang on to it. And as you mentioned, they're going back to the architect of the original seller in these agreements, Brian Mulroney, and he's the one that's advising them on, the, on, on, the, on these talks. There's no plan B. And that plan that's open to Canada now, we're seeing the kind of actions that the Americans are taking to try to force us to our knees. And the doorway that's open now is for Canada to build a Canadian-controlled economy. We once had that, an east-west flowing economy where we had Massey Harris, Massey Ferguson, the largest manufacturer of farm equipment in the world. We've had, we had our national railways 
controlled in this country, taking goods east and west, and we had a higher standard of living. That's what we need to do, is step out of this straitjacket of the NAFTA, and, and which is dominated, of course, by the Americans that are ten times bigger than us, but foster our, our own independent Canadian economy using our resources. We shouldn't be shipping these raw resources out of the country and letting the Americans refine them and buying them back at sky-high prices. We should refine our resources in Canada and use the benefits for, for Canadian citizens. And our industries, like our dairy industry and others, if we, if we give those up, of course, we make ourselves completely dependent on the U.S. for our food, our milk. The Americans use a bovine growth hormone, which has been banned in Canada. So all of that would come into our, our, our country. Instead of doing that, we need to build our own economy that can compete with economies around the world. We've got advantages and resources that other countries can only dream about having. This globalization model that we're in is not working. It's not working for ordinary Canadians. It's not working for our country. We need a national economic strategy that looks at how to build on our advantages to make an independent Canadian economy, as the Japanese have done, as the Norwegians have done, as any successful national economy has done, as the Americans did when they built their own economy. They protected their industries that needed protecting until they became world players. And uh, that's what we need to do. David Orchard, thank you so much for your insights. We've been speaking with organic farmer, author, and political activist David Orchard. His website is davidorchard.com. This past weekend, Canada made international headlines following statements from White House officials about Justin Trudeau. For Canadians, this level of publicly expressed enmity toward a Canadian Prime Minister is virtually unprecedented in recent decades, and many Canadians are concerned about what this means for the ongoing future of trade between the two countries and the future of Canada-U.S. relations generally. John Helmer wrote an article about this development recently. He referred not only to the Trudeau-Trump spat, but also to the inter intervention by Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland during a Sunday press conference. To get more clarity on his thoughts about this, we contacted Mr. Helmer recently. John Helmer is the longest continuously serving foreign correspondent in Russia, a professor of political science, sociology, and journalism, and served in Jimmy Carter's administration. He joins us from Moscow. I wonder if you could just address this uh, this whole situation. We, we can't dismiss it as a man-child president throwing one of his uh, you know trademark temper tantrums on Twitter. It was a coordinated attack. What was the message? To whom was it targeted? What's the strategy? What the hell? Uh, good, all good questions. Yes, it was coordinated. It was not one of uh, Trump's one-off tweets. Coordinated with the economic advisor, so he represents Commerce Department and several other agencies of the U.S. government, the Treasury included. Uh, the trade advisor, who represents Commerce, the trade negotiating group, uh, and John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, also weighed in on the way to Singapore on the plane. So, uh, and he represents State Department, intelligence agencies, the military, and so on. So all the agencies of government uh, spoke through those three advisors to back up Trump. So it's coordinated. Um, that's the first thing. 
it's not a Trump madness, as many of the defenders of Mr. Trudeau and Ms. Freeland want to argue in the Canadian press. Second, uh, strategically, uh, the U.S. target is um, on two, twofold. One is a warning to China that the U.S. will be ruthless in protecting its markets and uh, can demonstrate that by doing to its nearest neighbors what it proposes to do to China, uh, locking major trading partners out of the international trading markets uh, if the U.S. decide its interests are best served. Third point, the U.S. was more or less saying what's true. After all, when Mr. Trudeau didn't find the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, as he had agreed behind closed doors at the APEC summit last November to serve Canadian interests, he refused to sign and walked away from the summit uh, last November. Now, people in Canada don't remember that, but the Japanese certainly do. What Mr. Trudeau did then was what Mr. Trump has accused Mr. Trudeau of doing now, meek and mild, agreeing behind closed doors, and then suddenly not showing up to sign what he'd apparently agreed to. Some people could call that stabbing in the back. Some people might say, we're all screwed, which is a, a less than diplomatic term that was used of Mr. Trudeau's performance in November. So Mr. Trudeau's done this before when he did the Trump. So uh, when you add up these elements, what do you have? In my opinion, you have what the Russians, the Chinese, and the Indians, and others have, have all said. What is Canada complaining about now when it has endorsed the kind of trade sanctions, trade punishment against other countries for security reasons, allegedly? Mrs. Ms. Freeland has said the national security provision that the United States has invoked for the steel and aluminium tariffs in this particular case, Ms. Freeland's words, absurd. So absurd that Ms. Freeland hasn't endorsed the very same security measures when the uh, Americans applied the same tariffs against Russia, Russian aluminium, Russian steel, threatened to do the same to Chinese aluminium, Chinese steel, threatened to do the same to European cars, Chinese cars? Come on. What's happening here is that Canada wants to benefit from a system, an international system, entirely double standard system, and then cite its own case for exceptions to the rule while it endorses American aggression, trade aggression, against other countries for national security reasons. I shouldn't sound so excited in my voice, should I? Um, <laughs> The hypocrisy, the double-dealing, the double-faced stabbing in the back mm. is going on all the time, and Canada signed on to it. Freeland represents constant attack on Iran, Venezuela, Russia, China and the South China Sea. What does she expect? Favor from the United States for doing that? Or does she expect a reward? This sort of Canadian position is simply without foundation.
Sorry to say. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, Christia Freeland. She, of course, did intercept reporters as the media storm around this issue reached its climax. Uh, she is the foreign affairs minister and in charge of the, the file on, on, like, the NAFTA file, which uh, was being negotiated. What do you feel was significant about what she said and what she didn't say in that press scrum? She failed to defend Mr. Trudeau personally. That was rather significant. A foreign minister of a collective government in the British system or Canadian system um, com- confronted with what clearly was the most ad hominem attack, her Latin expression, would return to, to the defense of the man, Mr. Trudeau, the prime minister. But she didn't. She attempted to massage the defense as uh, as I've suggested, claiming the American national security basis was absurd, claiming that their tariff and trade calculations are unfair and mistaken. Well, maybe they are mistaken. Maybe they are unfair. Trump, however, is playing politics and is very effective politics. But Mrs. Freeland continually either miscalculates what the American strategy is, or she's calculating that she's going to replace Trudeau as a more effective prime minister in dealing with the current crisis. Either way, I think she's barking up the wrong tree, but her, her, her supporters in the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party advisers on international policy, believe that she's done an extremely effective, they've told me, so I'm half quoting what they've said to me anonymously, an extremely effective lobbying job in the United States. Mm. And that that's what, and I won't use the expletive, uh, angered the Trumpies. This is a mistake. Okay. It's a fundamental mistake. If she had been effective in lobbying Canada's position, and Canada is basically relatively weaker facing the United States than the other way around. Mr. Trump would have picked up the message. In fact, he sees this attack on Canada as good for his ratings, and it is good. You look at his approval ratings, he gets relatively negative approval on his foreign policy and significantly positive approval on his economic policy. Now, that's what you've got to lobby against if you want to change Trump's policy towards Canada. Mm. And Freeland can't do it. What she does is lobby the Democrats, the people who lost the election. That doesn't anger Trump. It simply reminds him where his votes come from. And uh, frankly, Trump, um, Trump is counting U.S. votes more effectively than Freeland and Trudeau could count. And that's obvious from the result of the provincial election in Ontario the week before. Okay, well, that that brings us to Canadian domestic politics. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that so many of the talking points of these White House officials seem to coincide with what uh, the opposition conservatives in Canada have been saying about Trudeau being weak and and just not ready and and so forth. I'm not so sure about the alignment between Ontario political politics and and federal politics because they tend not, I I find that that they are actually quite unaligned, uh, you know, historically. But 
you know, do you think that the tr- that the Trump is trying to, uh, I, I don't know, help the conservatives or at least people within the Liberal Party, you know, get, get us a leader that's a little bit more, uh, uh, that, that we can work with? Well, Michael, it's a fair question. And probably a good many of your listeners uh, know the answer better than me. I'm a Russia expert. I'm talking to you from Moscow. Let me say that strategically and from a Russian perspective, Canada has been barking up the wrong tree, driven by some very narrow constituencies, particularly the Ukrainians to whom Freeland is uh, related by family and ideology, um, into a kind of hostility against the rest of the world and can't fight adequately its own domestic, vital domestic interests any longer. That's When you're a small country, and I'm not speaking about Russia, I'm speaking about Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, North Korea, South Korea, when you're a small country with curtailed interests compared to big ones, you need a world which has multi-sources of power, pluralism, and room to pursue your interest without taking sides. What I am trying to say is Canada's been barking up the wrong tree for too long now and suddenly got a dose of reality. It's on the wrong side. It doesn't have to change sides, uh, but it has to accept that it's a tiny element in the G7 on the wrong side of the United States. That means Canada should accept the G7 isn't a club any longer worth belonging to. On the other hand, the G20, which includes China, India, all the major powers, uh, is a serious negotiating force, and the G7's worthless. So when Trump said, uh, Russia should rejoin the G8, whether that was a one-off or not, Canada served to crush it in behind the closed doors. Mm-hmm. President Putin has said, I'm not even going to comment on the G7 because he was at a summit meeting of China, India, Pakistan, Iran, and other countries in which rather bigger issues were at stake and where there was much more consensus. It's a great opportunity for Canada now to reappraise the direction it's been going in. If it doesn't get rewarded by the United States, perhaps Canada has to reappraise how to suit its own interests in the world. I don't think that's necessarily a vote for the Tories. It may not be a vote for Trudeau. It certainly isn't a vote for little Miss Ukraine, uh, Christia Freeland. Okay. Well, with that, I I really want to thank you for your thoughts, John Helmer. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking with John Helmer, Moscow-based correspondent and commentator. You can find his articles on his Dances with Bears blog at the site johnhelmer.net. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.